Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, a very happy new year to you and welcome to Talking Tudors episode 186. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. January's prize is a copy of Sandra Vasoli's brilliant new novel, Pursuing a Masterpiece. Thank you to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. Early next month, I'll be chatting to historian Matt Lewis about Richard III and the Princes in the Tower. You don't want to miss it. Further details will be published on Patreon. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tutors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTutors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Tudor treason is Dr. Dan Gosling. Dr. Gosling is Principal Legal Records Specialist at the National Archives, expert in the records created by the central law courts and the litigants bringing cases into these courts. His PhD examines statute interpretation in the late medieval and early modern periods. He's co-author of the recently released book, A History of Treason, the bloody history of Britain through the stories of its most notorious traitors. You can follow Dan on his Twitter profile, at thegosfather. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
Welcome back to Talking Tutors, Dan. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Nat. So lovely to have you back, and it's been a little while, so why don't we just start with you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. Yeah, cool. So um, I'm Dan Gosling. I'm Principal Legal Records Specialist at the National Archives UK, and my focus is on pre-modern legal records. So it's around about 1485 to 1750, but sometimes it goes a bit earlier, sometimes it goes a bit later. Um, my background, my PhD was on late medieval statute interpretation and court jurisdictions up to the English break with Rome. And I've got a particular interest in how these different courts interacted with each other and in what ways certain laws were interpreted over the centuries. Now, I'm excited today because we're actually talking about treason. So treason in Tudor times, something that we hear obviously a lot about. So can we start by you just telling us a little bit maybe about the history of treason and when we kind of get this label and when it starts in England? Yeah, of course. Cool. So where do I start? Um, so treason was first entered on the statute roll in England in January 1352. Uh, so this is in the middle of Edward III's reign. And this is known as sometimes as the great statute of treasons. So this statute, there's six main ways that a person could commit high treason, attempting to kill the king, queen, or the heir to the throne, violating the king's companion or consort, levying war against the crown, adhering to the king's enemies, uh, counterfeiting the great seal or the king's coin, and then finally killing the king's officers and justices in the execution of their officers. I've said the king there, but obviously it's queen when there's a queen on the throne because it's Edward III. 1352, the Treason Act, though, was just confirming and codifying these treasonous acts. Um, so these acts have been occurring for centuries in England and before there was even an England. So William Wallace, who was a sort of the great Scottish knight that fought against the English in the first Scottish War of Independence, made famous by films such as Braveheart, is a really good example of this. Um, he was executed for treason in 1305, so 50 years before the Treason Act, by the English King Edward I. And his crime was for leading a rebellion, levying war against Edward I. His trial and execution predate the 1352 Treason Act, though there's a lot of similarities between William Wallace's fate and that of future traitors. So Wallace is tried at Westminster Hall, which becomes sort of a place of great state trials and treason trials, including sort of Charles I's trial in January 1649. And then when William Wallace was found guilty, his punishment was uh, hanging, drawing and quartering which was a particularly gruesome punishment that became reserved for those found guilty of high treason. I think a final sort of important thing to note is that 1352 Treason Act was not a one-way street. And when we're talking about Tudor treasons, you might start to think that it's just being used by the Crown to sort of to protect themselves. But when it was enacted in the 14th century, it was meant to be, it was to the, for the benefit of Parliament and nobility as well. So they were the ones that actually petitioned the Crown to say, can we have treason defined, please, so that you sort of don't claim someone being a traitor or treasonous if they have committed other acts. So after 1352, the king couldn't arbitrarily, arbitrarily punish his critics using treason unless they committed the specific acts um, defined in 1352. Uh, it also, when it became enshrined and codified on the statute books, meant that it only applied to those that swore fealty to the crown under the common law system, so the subjects of the realm. Um, if the person denied that authority, then in the early modern and modern period, there's real questions about whether they could actually be tried for treason. Um, so this point becomes crucial later during uh, events such as the American Revolution in the 18th century. The, the American rebels declare independence and say, no, we're not traitors. We just don't swear fealty to you anymore. Um, and then in the 20th century, there's a trial of Lord Haw-Haw for treason um, after the Second World War, and that relied on him having once sworn fealty to the British crown. I mean, all this means that by the time that Henry VII became king in 1485, treason had been on the statute books for over a century and was quite well defined by that point. Um, was that the first time that 
that hanging, drawing and quartering is used as a punishment or, or was it being used previously to that? Uh, it's being used and it's it's understood that it's sort of the worst punishment. Like it's particularly gruesome. It's worse than just execution by another method. So that's how it becomes sort of associated with treason because treason is the worst crime right. you could commit. They go, well, if it's the worst crime you could commit, then you should have the worst punishment as well to fit that crime, the punishment fitting the crime. So if we're talking specifically now under the Tudors, so can you talk to us a little bit about what constituted treason in the Tudor reign? And also it would be really good because you mentioned high treason there, but I know that there are other sort of forms of, of treason, maybe lesser treason. So can you maybe just define those for us a little bit as well? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, on the whole, during the Tudor period, it's still the key acts defined in the 1352 statute that constituted treason. So what the Tudor monarchs are doing, they're sort of amending or being more specific about those acts of treason. Um, so Richard III was deemed a traitor because he levied war against the rightful King Henry VII for the Battle of Bosworth in 1485. And what Henry actually did was he dated his realm to the day before the battle so that Richard III was a traitor against the rightful King. Um, but that's just making sort of his usurpation of Richard fit this treason act or these, these treasonous acts. Uh, during Elizabeth I's reign, corresponding with Philip of Spain, for example, could be interpreted uh, as adhering to the Queen's enemies, uh, particularly after Philip's failed Spanish Armada in 1588. So we see treason records saying you've been talking to the King of Spain or the King of Spain's agents, and then that, those are in treason records. So yeah, the Tudor monarchs are adapting the 1352 Treason Act to fit the challenges of their age. So yeah, I should add that what we're talking about when we say treason here is the act of high treason, as you said, and that's so called because plotting the death of a monarch was worse than plotting the death of anyone else. So it's distinguishing it from that lesser crime, lesser crime of murder. But the 1352 Act also defined other treasons. I think the most important of these is petty treason. So this is the offence of killing your social superior. So if a wife kills their husband or a servant kills their master or mistress. So like high treason, it's deemed a more serious crime than just murder because there's this added element of betrayal. So what the 1352 statute is really doing is saying the crime is killing someone, but we're adding these extra bits because there's an added element to it that makes it worse than just straight murder. Yeah. And so we, we mentioned, obviously, that, that the hanging, drawing and quartering was the sort of common punishment for men accused of or convicted, sorry, of high treason. So were there other, I know sometimes that was, that sentence was commuted, obviously. And what about women accused of treason? Yeah. So there was, there were different punishments for men and women because hanging, drawing, quartering was seen to be so gruesome. They decided that it would be more fitting punishment for women accused and found guilty of high treason was burning. So women found guilty of treason were to be burnt. I think there's quite a good example of this in Anne Boleyn's treason trial and then her actual death warrant. Because she was found guilty of high treason, um, it was customary for her to be burnt. But in the death warrant uh, that was issued by Henry VIII, he basically was given a choice by the judge in the trial and said she can either be burnt or executed at the king's sort of pleasure. Henry VIII in the death warrant, it says he's moved to pity, so he doesn't want the gruesome punishment of execution by burning Fran. So she gets beheaded uh, with a sword in the French style uh, instead. Very kind of Henry, hey, to uh, allow her. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's always trying to come out looking good. That is one thing I've noticed. <laughs> so yeah, hanging, drawing, courting was a, a particularly gruesome punishment um, in the night and it existed as a punishment for high treason until the 19th century um, when they actually adapted 
the punishment. Um, so they they gave a very sort of detailed description of what hanging, drawing, and quartering consisted. And the thing was that the the traitor was alive throughout the whole process. So they were only hanged to the point of death, but not quite dead, so that they could be drawn on a hurdle and then quartered. After the 19th century, after this statute, they say that the accused would be hanged until they were dead. And afterwards, they were ritually still sort of drawn and quartered. And it's that ritual aspect of the execution that just remains, because it's not just to kill or execute the traitor, it's to send a message to would-be traitors as well, to say, like, this is a really bad way to die. So after the, um, the Babington plot in 1586... Um, the first set of conspirators are executed on the first day, hanging, drawing, and quartering. And that was said to be so gruesome that according to William Camden's annals, she declared that the next set of uh, conspirators that were executed on the next day, they could be hanged until they were dead. But then they had to be drawn and quartered as per usual. And there's a really great example from 1660 after Charles II came to the throne. Um, so by that point, sort of the main people involved in the regicide of Charles I, 11 years earlier, um, had died. But Charles II still wanted to have that ritual execution of these men. So these men, Oliver Cromwell, John Bradshaw was a chief prosecutor, Henry Ireton and Thomas Pride. So these men had all died by 1660, but their bodies were dug up and then they were hanged, drawn and quartered posthumously and then put on display their body parts to show what happens to these really bad traitors. So there's the ritual aspect of this execution as well is just as important as the actual executing the traitor. Wow, I had never heard of that. That's that's horrific, isn't it? Goodness. And do yeah. you think so? Yeah. Do you think that's why, you know, when we talk about people taking their families, you know, on these days to watch executions and that kind of thing? Is this to to kind of prevent their their children from, you know, going down that path? Is it to kind of scare them, do you think? Is that why people went? I mean, it's possibly that. I think it's possibly just people like to see gruesome things. Yeah, <laughs> By some cool. of our most popular histories are these these horrible, gruesome acts committed against men and women. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? A nice day out for the yeah. family. So let's talk a little bit about treason trials, because obviously we hear about lots of famous trials in the Tudor period that take place, and Westminster Hall is a great place to visit to imagine those. But can you tell us a little bit about like who is sitting in judgment? Does the monarch go? All those kinds of interesting details about it. Yeah, sure. So in the Tudor period, and in fact throughout the sort of history of treason, most treason trials um, that took place under the common law were tried by special commissions of Oyer and Terminus. So these are commissions granted by the Crown to sort of investigate certain events. Um, so this meant that even though it was part of the criminal justice system, it didn't necessarily need to be the Chief Justice of King's Bench, um, which was a senior criminal court that sat as judge in these trials. So for these trials, the King or Queen would appoint the judge. And this was usually a senior peer or senior member of the Crown's household, such as the Lord Steward. And they would sit as judge and then would try and would judge and try the accused. And the National Archives has several of these commissions, which include sort of the monarch's signature, the great seal. And they're just really impressive to look at. But as a sort of legal document, all they're doing is just appointing the judge. As these were trials at common law, uh, a jury was also appointed and they would judge the defendants guilty or not guilty. So they weren't necessarily guilty just because they were being tried for treason. They still had to go through that jury process and be found guilty or not guilty. In terms of whether or not the monarch was present, by the 16th century, not that often. They would know about the trial because they had to sign things like commissions or give their permission to go. But it, it was on the monarch's authority, these trials, but they weren't necessarily there in person. In terms of the trial itself, there were witnesses and they could be brought to the trial itself, but more often than not, they'd already been examined and provided evidence prior to the trial itself. 
um, the defendants were at an enormous disadvantage because they weren't told the specific charges against them until they appeared in court and they weren't told about the outcome of any of these witness examinations, nor were they allowed to appoint legal counsel. So it's a real disadvantage against them. During Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk's trial for treason against Elizabeth I in January 1572, evidence of his correspondence with Mary, Queen of Scots, which had implicated him in the treasonous Rodolfi plot, were produced as part of his trial. He denied writing the letters up to that point and was unaware that they'd been discovered through the questioning of his servants. When he learned this at his trial, he requested legal counsel and he was denied, still pleaded not guilty, but was judged guilty because all this evidence had been sort of brought against him without his knowledge before the trial itself. It must have been a great shock to to then hear what you're accused of and try and come up with some sort of witty defence at the last minute. It must have been very yes, difficult. Yeah. So you talked about the fact that obviously the Tudor monarchs are adapting and making changes to, to laws that have been in place for quite some time. So can you tell us about some of those key changes made to the, the treason laws during the 16th century? Yes. Yeah, so Henry VIII's reign is pretty crucial for this, um, particularly in the 1530s. And Henry VIII did, made a lot of amendments to treason laws during his reign. So in 1531, uh, there was an act for poisoning where Henry VIII declared um, through statute law that poisoners were to be um, judged guilty of high treason. And if they were found guilty, they were to be boiled to death. So this was his attempt to make the punishment fit the crime. Um, This was in response to a specific event, um, a man called Richard Roos, um, that was accused of trying to poison the Bishop of Rochester, who was one of the king's officers. Um, So he was found guilty of high treason and boiled to death. Um, So that was sort of a way that Henry VIII is trying to sort of create a new treasonous act. But it's in the acts of succession and supremacy that you really see Henry VIII creating long-term effects for the history of treason. Um, So Henry VIII broke from Rome. What that meant was you start to see sort of religious reasons for committing treason. You particularly see this during Elizabeth I's reign because it's now a Protestant realm against the Catholic powers in Europe, including papacy. But also Henry VIII's penchant for marrying several (laughs) women and queens has an effect, a legal effect on treason. And this all ties into the Acts of Succession and Supremacy. So the Act of of Supremacy declared Henry uh, supreme head of the Church of England. And then there's another clause um, in that same statute about his Act of Succession by marrying Anne Boleyn, and the heirs should be true heirs. But it also adds things like calling Henry VIII a a heretic or an infidel is a treasonous act. So calling him a heretic is a treasonous act. And he's adding these things to sort of support his uh, policy, his his religious agenda. But then when Anne Boleyn is executed for treason, they have to change those succession laws to remove references to Anne and keep sort of the bits that are relevant. So Henry's true heirs and protecting them using treason laws. So there's there's a it becomes very complicated because Henry keeps marrying people <laughs> and changing the succession and trying to push through his religious policies. He doesn't really have to deal with that too much during his reign. Um, It's sort of the longer term implications, particularly, as I said, during Elizabeth's reign. Her treason laws are largely in response to these sort of new religious treasons that were created by the break with Rome. So the Pope excommunicated Elizabeth in 1570. And you see acts of parliament after this uh, sort of more strongly rejecting papal authority in England. And then you have a lot of Catholic plots against Elizabeth that are persisting throughout his reign, including plots like the Rodolfi plot that I mentioned earlier. And you start to see harsh laws being passed against Catholics and tying these in 
to treason. So the Jesuit Act of 1584, for example, actually ordered the expulsion of all Roman Catholic priests from the realm with, uh, within 40 days. And if they didn't, they would face the punishment of high treason, which sounds very, very complicated, all of these sort of amendments. And, and it was, and uh, contemporaries at the time were sort of critical of these amendments, particularly of Henry VIII's treason laws. So the first statute of Edward VI's reign actually repealed all of the amendments that Henry VIII made concerning treason and basically reset the clock back to 1352. And in the preamble to this statute, it identifies how important it is that there is a law of treason and how it's really well defined and not abused and sort of watered down by all of these amendments. And that's why it justifies repealing all of these sort of Henrician amendments to treason. In 1554, in Mary I's reign, uh, there's a trial of a man called Nicholas Stockmorton, and he's talking about Henry VIII's treason laws and actually describes them as uh, some term them Draco's laws, which were written in blood. So the sort of the contemporary opinion and immediately after Henry VIII's reign, they were, he was seen as abusing treason law. And that's why that's why Edward VI repealed them. And even going into Mary the First reign, they were still seen as sort of bad laws. It's so interesting. And I know that obviously that the 1534 Treason Act, it, you, you didn't even need to do anything, did you? You just needed to imagine the king's death or speak about it. So is that the first time that speaking and imagining come into play? Uh, yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. So um, it's that's not included in the 1352 Act. And you start to see Henry and Edward as well, sort of treason by writing right. and written words rather than sort of a specific act of trying to usurp the crown. Um, so you see these sorts of offences being added, and some of them stick. So the sort of the compassing and imagining is in the 1352 Act, but they start to define it more and more. And and so you you mentioned that at these trials, there, there's a jury there as well. But was anyone ever charged with treason, but then actually deemed innocent at the trial? Um, there were some, yeah. And I'll, I'll actually stick with Nicholas Throckmorton, who we've just mentioned um, from 1554. So he was arrested uh, by Mary I's government for being sympathetic to Thomas Wyatt. Wyatt's rebellion was rebelling against Mary I's marriage to Philip of Spain. So Throckmorton sort of come out and said, didn't trust the Spanish and didn't think they should be marrying the English crown. Um, so the indictment against Throckmorton actually said that he was a chief instigator of this rebellion, though this was undoubtedly an exaggeration to make Throckmorton's actions seem worse than they were to the jury. But Throckmorton was given the opportunity to speak to the jury, to the judges, and apparently he did sort of showboat a little and sort of showed off his legal knowledge speaking to the jury a lot during his trial. And he made the point during his trial in 1554 that what he was accused of was not a treason according to the 1352 statute. And by that point, that was the only one that was valid because all of Henry VIII's ones had been repealed. And this is when he mentions this quote about some called them Draco's laws, because he's talking about Henry VIII's treason laws, why they were bad and why they were repealed. Um, so he claims that it, it was no treason nor no procurement of treason to talk against the coming hither of the Spaniards. He's saying, I can talk about how much I dislike the Spaniards as much as I want. It's not treasonous. And then he's actually acquitted. So wow. his argument, um, the jury, jury went, you, you, may, you may be committing some form of offence, but it's not treason. Um, so it's a really good example of why treason needed to be well defined, because Henry VIII's meddling with it has sort of watered it down to mean that people can't be found guilty if, you know, they know the law, which Throckmorton did. And in terms of, I know, definitely during Henry VIII's reign, you, you hear a lot of people being convicted by act of attainder. And, you know, we see it with, I think, Catherine Howard and Lady Rochford, I think, as well. So what does that actually mean if they're if convicted by act of attainder? Yeah, so, I mean, act of attainder, and depending on your perspective, could be one of the ways that the Crown and the government are getting around the fact that if someone is tried at common law, 
they have to be tried by a jury of peers and they can be found not guilty. It's unusual for them to be found not guilty, but people, if they're tried at common law, they have to have a specific, have committed a specific offence against a statute to be found guilty. And what Henry VIII was finding during his reign was a lot of things that he wanted to try people for treason for. You couldn't quite fit into the 1352 statute, so you couldn't try at common law. Uh, so an act of attainder is a parliamentary act. So it's going through Parliament and it's being enacted like any other statute was. And what that Parliamentary Act does, it declares a person guilty of treason or a traitor to the realm. And that meant that they were executed, they were still alive, and that their goods were forfeited to the Crown and they get the punishments, the posthumous punishments of treason as well. So it's used and developed for cases when a person could not be tried at common law for offences against the 1352 Treason Act. So that's either because their crimes did not amount to treason as specified in the Act, or because they'd already died. So a good case of already died is um, the gunpowder plotters um, in 1605, and the trial was in January 1606. Half of the plotters had died in the shootout on 8th of November, so including Robert Catesby, who was the main instigator. So in January 1606, there was the sort of the treason trial of Guy Fawkes and the surviving conspirators, and they were found guilty for treason. But they also had to pass an act of attainder against Guy Fawkes, but also Robert Catesby and the, the traitors that had already died because otherwise they had died and they weren't traitors. So it needed to go through Parliament to confirm that they were traitors so they could seize all their goods. So an act of attainder is one of the ways you could do that because you can't try a dead person, basically. The case of Elizabeth Barton from Henry VIII's reign, she was the holy maid or nun of Kent, is a really good example of sort of attainder in action and how sometimes Henry VIII would try and use it if he couldn't get the 1352 act to fit how he wanted. So in 1533, uh, Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell wanted to try Barton for treason because she was famous for her visions and had prophesied that if Henry married Anne Boleyn, he would be punished by God. Basically, she said something like, he will not be king one month more should he marry Anne Boleyn, the implication being he would either die or be deposed. Henry and Thomas Cromwell thought this was treasonous, but Henry's legal counsel, the judges of the realm, disagreed. And they said it's not treason by the 1352 Act. And so they had to prosecute Barton through an act of attainder. And the good thing about an act of attainder for people that want to put it through is you don't have to say they have committed this offence and this is a treasonous act by 1352. You just say, these are the, these are all the offences this person has committed, therefore they're a traitor. And if it passes through Parliament, all the Houses of Parliament and the Estates in Parliament, then that person is a traitor because the act has passed through. So it doesn't need to go to trial. It doesn't need to have a jury saying someone is guilty or not. As you may assume, this could be abused to circumvent the 1352 Act. Um, so in the 17th century, in particular in the 1640s, when sort of the King and Parliament are in discord, the King's favourites, William Loud and Thomas Wentworth, um, who were his closest advisors, they were both declared traitors by Parliament and executed following acts of attainder because they tried to prove that the offences were treasonous under the 1352 Act and couldn't quite make it fit. So they had to put it through Parliament as an act of attainder. And so when someone's convicted of, of treason, does, it, does the monarch actually sign the death warrant or is there some other sort of seal or is it a, a mix of both things? Uh, yeah, it's a mix of both things. Um, so there there are death warrants and for treason trials, they would often have to be signed or, or authorised by the monarch. And there's two really good examples in uh, Anne Boleyn and Mary Queen of Scots' death warrants. So we've already mentioned Anne Boleyn's death warrant that um, the original warrant doesn't survive, but we have a chancery precedent book which copies out the warrant just because it was such an unusual warrant because Henry's sort of deciding on how um, Anne's going to be executed. So that is a warrant 
being authorised and issued by King Henry VIII moved to pity, you know, to execute it by the sword. Mary, Queen of Scots is a really good example as well, just because we know that Elizabeth I really didn't want to sign the death warrant unless she absolutely had to. So people sort of pushing her to, to sign it. And it was only sort of when they said, oh yeah, there's this another plot using Mary Queen of Scots to try and execute you that Elizabeth was sort of her hand was forced she signed death one and even then she still wasn't happy she claimed that she did she didn't really want to do it she, she just wanted Mary gone and sort of executed without her having to authorize it so we know that the yeah, there were there were death warrants and they had to be authorized by the crown for these executions to go uh, to pass and go through so you've talked about obviously some of the the people that were tried and executed for high treason during the Tudor times can you tell us about any others maybe that you've you've looked at perhaps um yeah i mean the thing is there's so many <laughs> so <laughs> pretty much any pretty much any name you know from the Tudor period that died a sort of an unfortunate death is probably they they were treasonous or traitors or deemed traitors mm-hmm. by the Tudor monarch at the time. What I've found when I've been looking through the records, so there's there's a whole series at the National Archives called the Bag of Secrets, Bag of the Secretis, which is in KB8, and that collects trials of state importance, which is for the Tudor period predominantly treason trials. Uh, so that's where you find the records of Anne Boleyn, um, also the Gunpowder Plotters, and later treason trials. But you also find sort of treasons of lesser people, lesser well-known people. So in Elizabeth's reign in particular, there's a lot of plots um, specifically to remove or kill Elizabeth to put um, a Catholic monarch on the throne. Mary Queen of Scots, while she's alive, but thereafter just any Catholic replacement. And you see individuals um, like there's a man called Valentine Thomas late in Elizabeth's reign. He declares he's going to come down from Scotland and he's going to present a petition to Elizabeth to get close enough to kill her and um, to shoot her. He actually gets arrested and put into prison. And then when he's in prison, he writes a poem on the wall of his cell in the Marshall Sea saying how I tried to kill Elizabeth I and failed, but wouldn't it have been a great thing if I succeeded? And then and then you see others. Um, so there's another man again in Elizabeth's reign. There's a lot of treason trials and attempted treasons in Elizabeth's reign, partly because she had such a long reign, 45 years, but partly because she's dealing with this fallout of the break with Rome. And there's a man called Edward Squire, and he tries to poison the queen. There's this really sort of elaborate plot to uh, poison the pommel of her horse so that when she next goes riding, she will get poisoned and die. It didn't work. And he got arrested and it turned out that he'd gone to Spain and Philip of Spain had authorised it and sort of provided him with the poison. Um, so I think there's a lot of stories we know relating to Tudor treasons, but there's probably as many, if not more, yeah. stories we don't know. And those are the ones where you get the sort of the really weird individual plots where it's usually just one person that's trying to do it. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'd never heard of that that one that you mentioned at the end there. No wonder they were so paranoid, right? Like, or Elizabeth. Especially. Yeah, I mean, I mean. For Henry VIII, you do get a sense that he's just, just being quite paranoid without, you know, much to go on. But by Elizabeth's reign, she's seeing, you know, Catholic plots against her every year or so. And those are just the ones that actually make it to trial. You also yeah. have the other ones that are sort of stopped in their tracks before that. So if we're talking about numbers, Dan, I know I've tried to, to find answers to this so many times and I've seen you know, a huge range of, of numbers put forward in terms of how many people were executed for high treason, let's just say during Henry VIII's reign. And it varies. Everything I look at is so varied. Do you, do you have any idea? Can we tell or is it kind of impossible to know? The short answer is it's, it's probably impossible to know. Yeah. I think it's possible to sort of come up with estimates. I haven't done the, the calculations myself, but it would be looking at Acts of Attainder, for example, these records in KB8 and the other King's Bench records and other treason trials. So those are the two main ways that people could be executed for treason. So you could probably 
look through those records and get an approximate figure. But again, those are only the people that sort of make it to that stage. There might be people that just get arrested and either acquitted or not acquitted and they die before they're tried. So yeah, to find an exact figure is very, very difficult and probably impossible. But there would be ways, but it would be quite fiddly and having to look through different sets of records to find out the exact number. But in Henry VIII's reign, it was a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think it's in the thousands? Because I have seen up to (laughs) tens of thousands. I thought that just sounds a little bit too, like too many. I I don't think for actual executions for treason and for being traitors, probably not. There are probably Mm -hmm. lots of people that were arrested and executed just accused of general treachery um, and then they'd be executed for other means but I think in terms of actual people executed for trees and it's probably not that high Um, I'd say in the hundreds though still a lot of people isn't it (laughs) yes it's a lot of people Um, so so treason people power and plot I think I got that right is a major new exhibition uh, which is now at the National Archives where you work so what are some of the highlights that people can see at this exhibition Uh, well a lot of the cases I've mentioned today are actually represented in the exhibition in some way so for the Tudor period we have the act of supremacy that made Henry VIII supreme head of the Church of England we've also got Anne Boleyn's treason record or part of the pleadings of Anne Boleyn's treason record. That's next to Thomas More's treason record, who was one of sort of the main martyrs of this break with Rome. And he was executed for treason because he refused to deny the authority of the papacy, even though Henry had made it law that you had to do so, or you could be executed for treason. We have uh, documents relating to the Rodolfi plot, um, one including Elizabeth's signature and seal. And it's not just uh, for the Tudor period, it's a exhibition going from the 1352 Act all the way up to the 20th century and the present day. Uh, so we have the records of the gunpowder plot. We have records relating to the American Revolution. We have records relating to the Easter Rising of the 20th century in Ireland. And then we've got medieval records such as the attainder against Richard III or Eleanor Cobham's uh, witchcraft and necromancy mm-hmm. trial. Well, that sounds amazing. And when does that end, that exhibition? So that is through until April 2023. So tell us about the accompanying book that you've co-authored. Yeah, so when we were doing the research for the exhibition, I'm one of the co-curators of the exhibition. There's four of us. We realised, one, there's far too many stories to tell for one exhibition alone. I mean, what's in there are sort of a whittled down to you know, 50 or so documents. But also it's such an interesting story to tell. So the exhibition tells the story from the 1352 Act to the present day. But we realise that there isn't really a a book telling that story, um, at least for the general public. Um, That's what this book is aimed for people that aren't legal historians, aren't well versed in sort of these legal technicalities. And it's to tie together all of these stories that we know, like Anne Boleyn, like the gunpowder plot, like the American Revolution, and seeing how they connect to this sort of narrative of treason. So we've written this book, book, it's called A History of Treason, and it looks at the 1352 Act, what it actually defined, but then how it was used, interpreted through the centuries as England became Britain, as Britain gained its sort of overseas empire, and how do you apply treason overseas, and then sort of going up to the present day in the 20th century and what is treason today to sort of the minds of the British people or to the world. That sounds intriguing. And so can can people buy it? Is it just available at the National Archives or can you get it from other places online or other bookstores? No, it's available at all good bookshops, uh, good, both yeah. online and in person. I think I'll have to add that one to my list. My I always say, no, that's <laughs> enough. I've bought enough this year, but, you know, one more. Never hurt anyone. And the last thing, Dan, which I, I always ask guests, is for a Tudor takeaway. So something for our listeners to go off and check out after the episode. So do you have a takeaway for us? 
Uh, I do, and it's some more shameless self-promotion, I'm afraid. Um, okay. So as as well as as well as the exhibition and the book, um, National Archives, we've also got a wider season, um, hashtag treason season, looking at the stories we couldn't tell in the exhibition or the book or sort of interesting stories that we found. So that's on our website, on our blogs. Um, there's some podcasts relating to the history of trees and National Archives have produced. Their Twitter feed is doing, or our Twitter feed is currently doing sort of a gunpowder on this day, day by day since the discovery on 5th of November, all the way through to their trial in January uh, 1606. Um, so yeah, look out for the hashtag treason season and the National Archive sort of wider exhibition content. It's not just for the Tudor period, but there is a lot in there for Tudor treasons, which aren't necessarily told in the exhibition. So I definitely recommend seeking those out. That sounds fantastic. And I'll add some links to our show notes so that people can find that. And thank you again, Dan, for coming back and talking Tudor treasons with us. It's been absolutely fascinating. Not a problem. Thanks, Nat. It's been a pleasure. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. 